What's up, everybody? Happy Tuesday. Welcome back to another episode of A Little More Good. Good to have you with us for today's show. I'm Dean, as always, joined by... Zach here. What's up, everybody? Hey, hey, hey. We're we're really excited for today's episode. Um, We know you're going to love it. It is something... It's a conversation that we've been looking forward to having for quite some time since we both first discovered uh, this guest, Chip Conley. And his teaching, his wisdom, everything that he's putting out in the world just uh, has really lit us up. And so we were pumped to be able to sit down across the virtual table from Chip and have have this conversation. I can actually remember where I was, um, like many things. Uh, I often listen to podcasts while I run, and I was listening to the latest Rich Roll podcast, as we do, and uh, Chip Conley was the guest. And I... Sometimes I'll run for a fixed time, like 30 minutes or something like that. And sometimes I'll just run until, you know, I'm done running. And this podcast, I was so captivated that I just ran for like, I don't know, it was like a two-hour podcast. And yeah. I just wanted to hear the whole thing. So I just kept running. And I remember exactly where I was, Dean. I texted you after because we, you know, we've been really interested in regenerative farming and, and regenerative communities like built around uh, land and, and, you know, kind of that commune village concept. Um, and Chip Conley's built these incredible um, communities around mm-hmm. around regenerative farms. And I texted Dean. I was like, yo, this guy's doing it. He's doing it, team. Like, yeah. And then I see he's this, like, hotelier that's, you know, built 52-some hotels in the States. And I'm like... Man, like this guy, this is the guy. We, gotta, yeah. we have to learn from this person. Yeah. Um, so we both did a deep dive into his work, his books, his podcasts, and um, you know, they call him the modern elder and he he really is. He's got that that beautiful gift of of fusing, you know, his his wisdom with curiosity, lifelong learner and seeker, uh, while, you know, amassing uh, all the teachings and learnings from his his years of of business and and the community that he surrounds himself in. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Like when you think, you know, this rebel hospitality entrepreneur uh, who went and started making kind of like boutique, like bespoke hotels. Uh, one he founded uh, called the Joie de Vivre, like the Joy of Life Hospitality, and transforming motels around the country, uh, uh, around America. Um, and really finding a great amount of success doing it, moving eventually to uh, Airbnb and working alongside people there and recognizing, you know, there was an age gap and some diversity. And uh, as he shares on the pod, like that's where this idea uh, of the modern elder kind of was birthed almost as like a bit of a joke. And to see how he like has taken that and run with it and made it something that is really, really, I think a unique and very important um, bit of work in the world right now for you know all of us on <laughs> who are aging, which is all of us, but certainly those of us who are starting to move towards middle years and mid midlife, and redefining what that kind of time of our life looks like. And and now as as you said, like having this modern elder academy where you can go and actually spend time um, learning and s- really just distilling that wisdom of what it means to be a modern elder is is absolutely. Uh, timely and I think such a cool thing that he's pioneering um, yeah uh, in the midst of all this also Chip Conley is a New York Times best-selling author his books are wisdom at work uh, he's got emotional equations peak how great companies get their mojo 
and marketing that matters. And of course, the rebel rules, daring to be yourself in business. So very well written, very well spoken, um, just uh, an, an immense wealth of wisdom, knowledge, humility, all of the things. We were just so uh, happy with this conversation. He's got all these amazing nuggets, these little phrases we call mention them as kind of uh, bumper stickers that he'll throw out there that um, you know I'll find lingering in my mind for like a week at a time. Yeah, um, like he's I just kind of take notes. I've got this like Chip Conley section in my <laughs> phone and preparing for this, but I kind of kept them going. Um, like, how do you turn fear into curiosity? Like that's that's a great question that yeah. I you know was pondering from for for a week or so and. Um, you know, we get into a lot of this moving from proving yourself to improving yourself, um, going from can do it to a conduit. Um, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. So I love, good. I love these things. And he's got all these equations like, uh, anxiety equals uncertainty times powerless. Disappointment equals exp- expectations minus reality. Happiness equals wanting what you have divided by having what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, there are these just like great nuggets that if you kind of like really dive into them, they can have you, you know, pondering them and, and reflecting on on how how you relate to to these questions. Yes. All right. Um, before we get into the podcast, question for you, Dean: Who are a few of your modern elders? Oh, the modern elders. I mean, I think by default, like Chip would be one just based on what he puts out in the world and how we've really resonated with his message and and the fact that he's trying to create this like curated life. Like we, that's something that we think about a lot. So he is someone that I, I would look up to for sure in terms of like, what do I want life to look like on, you know, the other side of the midlife chrysalis. There we go. Um, obviously... It goes without saying, I guess, Rich Roll is someone too in terms of like who we look up to and admire and lives again, a life that, that we look at and say, yes, like that, that resonates. Um, uh, in many ways, my, my, uh, my father-in-law is someone that I look up to as an elder, um, and is full of wisdom and curiosity, like really embodies both of those things, uh, really well. So shout out to Danny. Um, and yeah, off the top of my head, there's there's probably a few others and maybe some might not might not even be like elders in age, so to speak, but in experience and yes. kind of how they've lived. Like I, I would say Gian, our friend our mutual friend Gian Pablico, someone that just embodies wisdom and um yeah, is someone that I really admire and look up to as well. So Yeah, yeah. I would I would uh add to your list um Akeem Pierre. Yeah. even though he's He's young in biological age. I feel like he has the the elder uh, wisdom uh, that he passes in, in all his, his teachings and messages that he shares. Arthur Brooks. Yes. Uh, great companion piece to Chip Conley as well. Uh, Darren O'Lean. Judy Brooks. Judy. Friend of the pod. Yes, uh, for sure. You know, she's been my business mentor and, and life coach for a long time. Uh, my father-in-law, Sean, as well. Shout out to Sean. Um, yeah, I think like thinking what is your own supply chain of, of wisdom and, and who are your modern elders? Like if you can ask yourself that and, and maybe like lean more intentionally into that relationship, if these are people that are in your life or are people that are, um, you know, attainable to your life, um, or if they're not, you know, 
slide into their DMs or send an email and just say what's up that they're you know would love to have a coffee or a conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe try to foster that that elder in your life with intention yeah. and curiosity. Yeah, I think it's such an important piece to have as we as we navigate aging and um, staying staying open and curious while adding to our years. Lastly, before we uh, roll into this episode, uh, before we started, we had a little a new conco- concoction that we uh, that we threw together, uh, a little alchemy and, and some hot water, where we mixed some some mushrooms, uh, cordyceps, lion's mane, chaga, yes. reishi, functional mushrooms, functional mushrooms, yes. <laughs> and we mixed mixed in something that we don't usually add to our pre pod uh, drink, a little shilajit, Ooh. Ayurvedic medicine, um, our Ayurvedic food, I shouldn't even say medicine. Um, I was telling Dean the story of Shilajit and it's really cool. Um, it's an ancient, ancient resin, uh, from the Himalayas, uh, common in kind of Nepal, India, Tibet, China region, uh, Pakistan. And it's, it's a resin that you find, uh, formed in the middle of these like rocks found in, in the Himalayas and you crack open the rock and there's this, the tar like, uh, resin that's full of like a hundred plus trace minerals, fulvic acid, all this, all this great stuff. And they found it, they discovered it like 10,000 years ago. Cause the, there was this group of monkeys that, uh, you know, had beautiful long fur and were, you know, seemed healthier than the other monkeys. Um, so they followed these monkeys and found that they're cracking open these rocks and kind of licking the resin from within them. So that's kind of the discovery of Shilajit. So we were drinking this and we were just like flying with energy. So we try to ground ourselves before the podcast. So if we seem a little more excited than normal, one, it was because we were talking to Chip Conley. Two, it's because we were on the Sheila Jeep. Yeah, it was very good. Better than the best coffee you've ever had, my friends. There you go. Yeah. There's one other supplement that we uh, regularly dose with, Athletic Greens. We love it. Athletic Greens on the daily. You know, and it's so easy to add either just a scoop of water, you shake it in the morning and slam it and it is delicious and it fills you up with all of the minerals, 75 high quality ingredients, probiotics, vitamins, minerals, adaptogens, got that everything from, from, from your body's health inside and out. There you go. That mind, body, soul wellness with AG1 from Athletic Greens. Yeah. We've been on the wagon for, for a while now, the Athletic Greens wagon. And I've been loving getting DMs and texts from our friends that are also on the the AG1 wagon. Um, I think the like the consensus has been like mind altering so far of of all of our friends that have adapted this into their day to day regime. So yeah. it's pretty cool to see to see um, others benefiting from Athletic Greens. Um, if you want to add that one scoop of of wellness to your daily routine, uh, we've got a special promo code for all of you listeners. Uh, athleticgreens.com slash more good athleticgreens.com slash more good and they will hook you up with five travel packs and a year supply of vitamin d which we all need especially right now during these winter months so true yes yes so be sure to get on it Uh, we're very grateful for their partnership and um, we know that you will love athletic greens in your life there we go let's let this episode with chip conley roll all right, we're here for another edition of A Little More Good, and uh, we're sitting across on, on the space between us, uh, the Zoom space in between us with uh, the modern elder himself, Chip Conley. Thank you for joining us, Chip. Yeah, you know what? When I was first called the modern elder at Airbnb, I didn't love it a whole lot, but you know, when they told me it was someone who's as curious as they are wise, 
I said, okay, um, I'll, I'll be that. I've, I've kind of hung on to that as like some, an aspirational, you know, path to follow someone that is as curious as they are wise. I feel like, like if that's the modern elder, that's something we should all be kind of striving for, you know? Yep. Agreed. Well, maybe before, you know, we want to really dig into, into mentorship, um, the role of the modern elder, what the modern elder is and kind of, you do a beautiful job of sharing these like nuggets of wisdom and these like kind of catchphrases that I, I kind of find myself repeating and just kind of like hanging on to these, like almost like these bumper stickers of, of eternal wisdom. Um, but before we go there, I would love just like the Coles notes, uh, the elevator pitch of how you went from to use one of your bumper stickers, the, the sage on the stage to the guide on the side. Mm. Yeah, so I, I started a boutique hotel company when I was 26 in the mid-1980s. And um, I had a little bit of a commercial real estate background, but at age 26, how much of an experience do you have? I had some, but not a lot. But I really loved the idea of boutique hotels. They were just starting to hit their stride in the United States. And so I started a company called Joie de Vivre, um, it's Joy of Life. That was their mission. Uh, and um, for 24 years, I was the CEO of that company became the second largest in the US, 52 boutique hotels all in California. And um, I loved it till I hated it. <laughs> I, I I really did love it for so long. And then the last two or three years, it, it was really hard. And it was hard for all kinds of reasons. In fact, my life was, I was struggling with my life in many ways, not just work. And um, I had a flatline experience. I, I actually died and went to the other side um, because of an allergic reaction to an antibiotic. And that really was like the hotel year's wake up call to, to saying, okay, um, let's change things. And I did. Um, the brief version is I ultimately at the bottom of the Great Recession, um, with less than two years after I uh, had that flatline experience, I'd sold the company. <clears throat> it was a hard thing to do um, on many levels, but it, it was the right thing to do. And I had my space back and I was no longer the sage on the stage. Yes, I gave speeches a lot. I liked to write books. So I did that. But I was in a in a place of feeling the freedom of like I'm no longer the founder and CEO, and it was a couple of years into my freedom that I got a call from the founder, co-founder and CEO of Airbnb, who said Brian Chesky asked me if I would help him and his his co-founders democratize hospitality as he called it, and um, you know. But long story short is that for four years I was in 60 hours a week, you know, next to Brian helping steer the rocket ship as his in-house mentor and the head of global hospitality and strategy. And then for three and a half years after that, I was a strategic advisor uh, to help the company move toward being, going to IPO, which in COVID was not, not simple. Um, and it was during that time that I really was the guide on the side. I was not, no, I was, I was not the one with, you know, my name in the paper or, in articles a whole lot. Yes, there are some because, you know, the story between Brian and me, he's 21 years old and he was my boss. It was a fascinating story. Um, and it ultimately led me to writing my last book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, which led me to creating the Modern Elder Academy. Amazing. Just, <laughs> I mean, that was an excellent job of the elevator pitch because there's so many so many stories and things like baked into the, even that whole approach. But yeah, just for our listeners to hear kind of like where where you came from, where you kind of cut your teeth in professionally, and then also that 
that um, invitation or that experience to step into becoming becoming the modern elder and creating opportunities for others to live into that. Um, I, I think the thing that I'm most curious about, even just in that, and will probably serve as a segue into how do people become modern elders is like, can you just unpack a little bit of like your your NDE and what that was like? Because that's not something that you hear about every day. So can you walk us through that? That must have been a pretty yeah. wild experience. It was. Um, so I had uh, my first mentee ever, like other than mentees within my company, but my first sort of like mentee was a guy named Gavin Newsom, um, who I still know very, very well. And he was 28. I was 35. He was a hospitality entrepreneur. I was a hospitality entrepreneur. His sister thought he didn't know what he was doing. And so she asked me, will you mentor my brother, Gavin? This was before he was a politician, before he was, you know, supervisor at San Francisco, mayor, et cetera. So we spent a lot of time together the next 10 years. Uh, and ultimately I was at his bachelor party for his second wedding and which was at AT&T ballpark where the San Francisco Giants play baseball. And we had the whole place to ourselves. which is if you're the mayor of San Francisco, you can do that. Um, and I broke my ankle and, um, and uh, when I was sliding into third base and I, I got, I got fertilizer in my leg and my leg went septic in the next few days. And that's why I was on a, initially an antibiotic, but it wasn't working on that well. So they put me on a stronger antibiotic. I should have stayed at home, but I was in St. Louis giving a speech. So I was like, that was not smart. Uh, sage on the stage. Um, and I was signing books uh, when I went unconscious. And um, fortunately, I didn't die immediately. Uh, I died, but about five or seven minutes later, after the paramedics had arrived and I was on the gurney, that was the first of nine times that I, I went flatline. And so I got to get shocked back to life with the paddles. And sometimes I'd come back to life on my own. Um, and, you know, I, I saw the other side. I, I, I don't know that I want to talk about that a whole lot, um, unless this was a this was a program devoted exclusively to that. What I can say is that on the other side, I, everything slowed down. My life was incredibly speedy. It still is. Here I am, 62 years old. And I still have a very, very active life. And there's moments when it's just, I look at my life. And I just say, <laughs> I got a lot of spinning plates and um, I love the adrenaline kick of that. But when I was on the other side, um, I, I was reminded I was like this bird in the sky, marveling at all the visuals I was seeing. And um, all I could think of was slow down. And one of my last hotels, well, not my last, one of my hotels that I created uh, with Joie de Vivre was called the Hotel Vitali in San Francisco. And it was a sort of a, a a spa meets financial district hotel, business hotel. It was very, very successful. And um, the slippers in every guest room, one, one slipper said slow, the other one said down. And so when I was actually up there in the air, like a bird, I had those slippers on, my slow down slippers. And so, yeah, I can talk a lot more about this, but I'll leave it at that for now. Um, what it taught me though, was um, the way we look at midlife in a, in, Western society is almost like, well, first of all, we have one word attached to midlife. What is it? Midlife crisis. crisis. Yeah. yeah. It's a brand that is not exactly the kind of brand a life stage wants to have. Um, so there's like, uh, so I started to realize that, man, I, I midlife is a crisis. And then I got to the other side of this midlife crisis and my fifties were like my favorite decade ever and all kinds of good stuff was happening. And I perspective changed a little bit. And 
then I started to realize, well, God, I've had the tale of two midlifes, the midlife of the worst of times and then the, the midlife of the best of times. And that's when I really started to think we don't do a very good job as a culture helping to uh, helping to guide people on the roadmap of what midlife is all about. Midlife is now by sociologists defined as 35 to 75. So it is a long fucking marathon, <laughs> excuse my language. Um, so learning, learning how to navigate the, the natural transitions of midlife and understanding um, how to move from a fixed or growth mindset, reframing our relationship with aging. Um, all these things were really sort of core to the program that we've created at MEA, the Modern Elder Academy. But deeply un under, underneath all of that is the idea we're a midlife wisdom school. So how do you learn how to cultivate and harvest your wisdom at any age? Because frankly, you could be 75 and not very wise and 25 and be a total wizard. So it it, it is a, it has more to do... It has Age can be a, a contributing variable to being wise, no doubt about it, because I define wisdom as metabolized experience that leads to distilled compassion. And so metabolized experience means the more experience you have, if you're metabolizing it, the more wise you could be. But there's a lot of people out there I can point to who have not been metabolizing their experience yeah. and therefore they don't get much wiser. But if you can, I'll tell you one last thing something I started doing at age 28 was I took a, a, a diary off the, the bookshelves in my home when I was just feeling like a total clueless 28 year old CEO of a company that was not doing well. Um, and instead of making it a diary, I just, I wrote on the cover of my wisdom book and every weekend I would spend 20 minutes writing down four five, six different bullet points of what I'd learned that week, not just in my work life, but also even my personal life. And so what I didn't know at the time was I was metabolizing my experience. I was going through a process of really trying to make sense of what I learned. And sometimes the greatest lessons, of course, were the ones that were the most painful. But the more I could actually try to understand the lesson and the meaning in it, the more I was able to elevate beyond the crap that I felt and feel like, okay, I'm improving, I'm getting better, I'm learning. And um, that is, I think, one of the most important things anybody can feel when they're feeling in a, sort of a death spiral with their career or their life. Mm. There's uh, there's a few things I'd like to zoom in from what you just shared there. Um, one, fixed mindset versus growth set, uh, growth mindset. Um, Dean and I are both, uh, you know, fathers to younger children, and and it's really the growth mindset's really evident when you have children. They're, they're just a sponge, and they're they're taking everything in. And the opposite can be said as as we age, we get fixed in our opinions, fixed in our politics, fixed in, you know, how we see the world. Um, so I always, you know, aspire to have that same curiosity and growth mindset that my that my young boys do. Uh, can you kind of talk about that, the difference of a fixed mindset versus a growth yeah. mindset? So Carol Dweck is our leader on this one from Stanford, and um, one of her protégés, Eduardo Brasino, is is a um, an MEA alum. We have we have three thousand MEA alums from forty two countries, and he's one of them, and he's been really helpful for us with this. So when you have a fixed mindset, you tend to focus on proving yourself. So outward appearances are important. You know, comp competition is important, um, and you define success as winning. That's simple. You prove yourself and you win. 
Now, listen, I grew up with that. Like <laughs> my sense of self-worth came a lot from my accomplishments. So when I look at that, it's like, okay, well, that is that a bad thing? You know, and I think it's good to go out and see where where it becomes a bad thing. And it and it has risks certainly in, in childhood because if you feel like your only self-worth is based upon the accomplishments or the successes that you are you're producing for other people, man, do you lose track of yourself and like what's important as well as what is really the most important piece of self-esteem, which is to feel good about yourself no matter what. Um, and uh, but where it's really painful and it has not and has been given a lot less attention is when that fixed mindset, if you take that perspective that you only play games you can win, and you're always trying to prove yourself. Two two key pieces of fa- fact here. Number one is comparison is the recipe of suffering, a good Buddhist statement. Um, and number two is uh, if you only play games you can win, your sandbox gets smaller and smaller and smaller as you get older, because you're not going to try something new. You don't become a beginner again. And the things that you used to be good at, some of them, not all of them, but some of them, you're just not as, as good at it anymore. So that is a prescription for boredom and for being cantankerous and frankly, feeling not so good about yourself. Mm. So a growth mindset on the other hand is not about uh, proving yourself. It's about improving yourself and you define success, not as winning, but as learning. And so the best thing we can do at any age, but in particular, my frame on this is midlife is to be open to becoming a beginner over and over again being less concerned about how it looks to others because it's not about proving, it's about improving. And most importantly, take quite a bit of joy in what you're learning. Uh, And one of the questions I love to ask here at MEA to all of the students who come down here uh, for our week-long programs is what is it you know now or have done now that you wish you'd done or known 10 years ago? And then once you've got locked in your brain, more important question is, 10 years from now, what will you regret if you don't do it or learn it now? And that's a really important question because it it forces someone to get off their butt and say, I'm going to have, I have anticipated regret. I will have regret if I don't learn Spanish or if I don't learn to surf or if I don't learn to cook or the ones that are most relevant are the ones where there's a physical activity involved. And if you're getting older, that becomes harder as well as things like uh, learning a new language. It definitely is harder to learn a new language, you know, with each passing year, um, because a lot of learning languages is memorization and short-term memorization is one of the things that gets worse over time with our brains. Although there's a bunch of things to get better with our brains as we get older, they have gotten much less attention than, you know, the fact that I forgot where I put my keys. Um, <laughs> so on that note um, of growth versus fixed, I think, we can get fixed on the identity we have with our job, uh, with our employment, whether it's a business we own or, or somewhere we work. Um, and you, you've spoken on that, um, you know, we're not the identity we have in our job. We're not, um, our self-worth doesn't, um, isn't attached to our net worth. Can you kind of talk about that attachment to story, your personal story to your profession? Like say my, my business fails and I feel like a failure or it's time to sell this business and move on to something else. And my my personality and my self satisfaction still attached to the personality I built uh, with that business versus the person that I that I am on the inside. Yeah, 
Well, for sure. Uh, I, I know this well. Um, <laughs> I'm still learning along the way, but I, I've gotten better. Um, I'll never forget when a friend asked me, you know, thir- over 30 years ago, so how are you doing, Chip? And my response was, the Phoenix is doing fine. That was my first hotel. Um, and she said back to me, I didn't ask about your business. I asked about you. I was like, oh, I didn't even know that I had connected those you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of entrepreneurs who are no, no longer living because of this attachment of personal identity and professional identity. Um, I lost five friends to suicide between 2008 and 2010, um, all of the men. Um, and I I think that the idea that we are um, somehow, especially for men, somehow defined by our business card or defined by our most recent accomplishment um, is it's a, it's a, it's a uniquely American thing generally. I mean, it doesn't mean it's not the true all over the world, but there's a, there's a strong foothold on this one in the U S and I guess the best way for me to, to describe this is that the, the best antidote to this is like, how do you live a more fully dimensional life? Um, my tendency is to go to one dimensionality. When I, I, I I'm a conduit, so things come through me. I have an idea, I, it, then I have a calling, then I have a passion. After I have the passion, it's like, oh, I got to go sacrifice because you know, actually, you know, Martin, Martin Scorsese's movie, The Passion of the Christ, was about sacrifice, and and actually, passion and sacrifice, the etymology of the words, very similar. Um, and so, long story short, is I get to sacrifice, and then I go to one dimensionality and the treadmill and all that. And so the issue is, I think, not just that we we believe that our sense of self-esteem and self-worth is a function of our success. It is actually that in the process of seeking that success, we narrow our world down so much that we have no perspective on other things. Mm. And so that, to me, is the under-reported part of this. What's reported is the idea of like, yes, too many people connect their sense of self-esteem with their professional success or their career. But I think what's underreported is that the, those many of those same type A people often are people who get into a very narrow sandbox. Um, and so they aren't able to have the perspective uh, that other parts of their life are doing well. They don't have the perspective that there are other people outside their business that they could have deep conversations with who could help them to see how multidimensional they are. So these these are the things that I, I I ponder having lost some friends to suicide who were who you know all, all five of those were during the Great Recession. Yeah, that's uh, thank you for sharing that. I'm I'm sorry for for the loss of those friends. And I mean nobody should ever be so tied to the success or failure of of a business or an entity or or an idea projection of themselves that it moves them to feel so hopeless. Um, that their choice is to is to go through and end, end their own life. And as you know, and you know, we know too, it's tragically all too common. So thank you for for highlighting that and touching on that. Um, I want to circle back to something you said because it kind of piqued some of my interest uh, about the idea of the midlife crisis and moving into like embracing uh being an elder would you say uh maybe like there's two parts is 
is a midlife crisis something that's inevitable? Like, do you face it one way or another, whether it's something as traumatic uh, as like an NDE or something like going out and buying the red sports car, uh, infidelity, whatever, whatever it might be. We often have these kind of like uh, token ideas of the crisis, but is it inevitable? Is it something that people, you know, it's coming and it's kind of like the train and then track and you just got to mitigate it. And the second part is tied to something you said that it piqued my curiosity. Is it, um, a predominantly like North American phenomenon or Western phenomenon, this idea of, of coming to this stage of your life and feeling like, Oh shit, like everything is falling apart. What do I do now? Well, I, I think it's, um, first of all, I think it's a midlife chrysalis, not a midlife crisis. Ooh, that's a good reframe. Because the, the, the chrysalis is the midlife of the butterfly and it's where it's dark and gooey. Um, but it's also where the transformation happens. And, um, so that's a reframe for you. Um, and that's the book coming up from me. (laughs) Um, so long story short is I think that what's true is the U curve of happiness research. The social science research is very clear about this. It is universal around the world that around age 45 to 50, but it can vary a little bit, um, based upon the country there is you hit your bottom in terms of uh, uh, life satisfaction during adulthood. And then with each passing decade after age 50, you get happier and happier, which is very interesting because it's so the opposite of the sort of societal narrative about aging. Um, So number one is, yes, this is, I think it's more acute in the US, but the issue of this life satisfaction issue around 45 to 50 is, is sort of normal globally. Um, who is it? Mo- who's who c- could you actually avert it? Yeah, of course. Because actually I think many of the things that people call a crisis are just normal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like, these are things that happen in midlife. Your parents maybe pass away your, your kids empty nest. And that becomes hard on a relationship. Sometimes, um, women go through menopause. Uh, you decide to change your career. You start having some health diagnoses. You start losing friends, uh, often older than you. And so there's a lot going on during this time. And uh, Bruce Feiler, who's wrote a book called Life is in the Transitions and is one of our faculty members, calls it a life quake. When you have a life quake, life quake is when more than one of these transitions is happening simultaneously. I would say that the, that the, the people who are most at risk of a midlife crisis, and this is where the American piece of this is very relevant, are those who wake up in their often in their early to mid forties and realize they have been speaking from someone else's success script. It's their definition of success was defined by parents, community, friends, whatever spouse. Um, And they feel an enormous chasm between what they want their life to look like and what it actually looks like. Secondly, another major factor in people feeling a midlife crisis is not just people who have sort of been climbing the wrong mountains, so to speak, to use some David Brooks language, but it's actually people who <clears throat> have had such high expectations of their life that, you know, in my, one of my emotional equations from one of my books is disappointment equals expectations minus reality. And so if your expectations are really high and reality is lower, you're going to be disappointed. And it is around midlife where you, that, that disappointment becomes more um, more pressing because you start to feel like, uh, you know, I'm not, you can sort of see the future. There's less hope, maybe and less optimism. There's a little bit more realism. And that realism 
brings you to a place of, of acknowledging, huh, I, I, I'm not, some of my expectations are not going to be met. Uh, my friend Brené Brown calls that the midlife unraveling. And what she really means is that it's around midlife, you have a ravel. So the word ravel, uh, for a lot of people who don't know it, ravel means something that's so tightly wound, you cannot pull it apart. So unravel sounds terrible, like, oh my God, that guy's unraveling. And it sounds like psychological condition, but actually to unravel something means you're actually just making it more spacious and less tightly wound, which is not a bad thing for us to look forward to in midlife. Um, especially when we, you know, in our thirties and forties, we have had so many spinning plates because there's so many things happening at once with the kids. And we spend the first half of our life accumulating and the second half of our life editing. So it's about midlife where you realize I'm tired of accumulating. I can no longer, I've got too many things going on here. <clears throat> so long story short is, um, Yes, the, if you know these things, I think millennials are in a much better position to have a softer decline in their in, in 45 to 50. It might even happen earlier. Um, and I think it's partly because, generally speaking, I think they've been less, less seduced by the societal game of life, board game idea of the linear life you're supposed to live. Um, you know, I'm a boomer and that's what I grew up with. Um, I think the Gen Xers felt a little differently. And I think millennials are like, you know, I'm going to take a gap year, you know, at age 25 or at age 35, I'm going to go back and get a master's at 38. Um, I'm going to retire, you know, the fire thing, like, uh, what is fire? It's at something retire early financial independence, retire early. It's a, it's a whole movement of generally younger people. How do you, how can you get to a place where you can retire at 40? And, and some of it has to do with like, just changing your spending patterns and like what defines success for you. So these are, I think these are a lot of things that I think are, are helpful because I think that they mean um, younger people who become adults are less on that treadmill. Um, and I think if you're less on the treadmill, you're less likely to have a midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. Kind of along those lines of, of aging. Um, I, I, I love that you've kind of framed it as part of it as a North American thing. Cause it, as I've traveled to various parts of the world, I have seen like the, the elder, the communities built around the, the elders of the community, whether that's in South America or, or Asia. Um, I feel we've got a different relationship that's evolving here. Thanks to folks like yourself. Um, one thing that you talked about, um, that was actually a quote that you shared from Eric Erickson. I am what survives me. Um, can you kind of touch on that quote and what that sure. means to you? So I actually think that there's a lot of I am statements that define that define the first half of my life. I am <clears throat> I am my business card, my achievements. I am what others think of me, my image. I am my possessions, status. Um, I am what I control, power. So no one talks that way. No one... <laughs> No one cops to this. Like these are I am bumper stickers in their mindset in their head, but they are relevant ones because they are very often very ego driven. And you know the ego is what really drives this vehicle. You know, or you know, and in a healthy way for a while, sometimes in an unhealthy way at some point. And so there comes a point at which the primary operating system of our life moves from the ego to the soul. And that happens around 50, age 50. It, it, your mileage may vary. It can happen at any age, but it's when something has shifted inside of you. Uh, and 
it is at that point when you start to actually think that what is most relevant in your life is not all those other I am statements that have achievement, image, status, power around them. It's more like I am what survives me. I am, you know, the the sum total of how my children live healthy, happy, productive lives. Um, I'm the sum total of that community park that I helped to get built in my, in my town. And the fact that there's a, a little dog walk there um, that people like, there's a community of people who've gotten to know each other because I took the lead in doing that. You know, I'm not talking about myself here, but I'm just saying, these are the kinds of things I am, you know, my grandchildren, I am um, that political campaign that led to uh, a change in something civically civic wise in your community. For me, I've written a bunch of books, so I'm my books. I MEA is totally my legacy, you know, in terms of I am what survives me. Um, I hope <laughs> so far so good. Um, and but I also I think the thing that's most important with this statement is because words like legacy can be really scary, like big L legacy. Oh my god! But just remember that what survives you could be how you showed up for your neighbor who was going through cancer treatments and the sense that you were there for that person. Um, and she, she lived and she got to the other side of it and she's 20 years younger than you. And, you know, when you're infirmed in a few years, your that person next door may come back to, to be there to support you because you taught her something. You know, and so I'm a big fan of um, It's a Wonderful Life. And we're doing this, you know, this particular podcast right before Christmas. And there's a movie that's always watched this time of year. And I love the George Bailey scene, you know, Jim, Jimmy Stewart as like, hey, Clarence the Angel shows George Bailey what uh, what Bedford Falls would have been like if George never had lived. And it was it's that kind of recognition of the impact you've had on other people. And David Brooks in his, in his well-known uh, op-ed in the New York Times called The Moral Bucket List uh, talked about the eulogy versus the resume values. And, and that's a really important thing, I think, in American culture because we're very wrapped up in, um, you know, our accomplishments, our resume. But at the, you know, at your funeral, nobody reads off your resume. Um, and what people notice and what, and the road to character uh, is really learning what what are the qualities people admire in you, and that's in many cases what you what will survive you is your character qualities because you were without knowing it a role model for someone else. Yeah, yeah. Someone who's like a uh, I would describe as a mentor of mine said, "I don't want people to stand up at my funeral and say the things I did. I want them to stand up and talk about how I made them feel." And that changes the way you interact with them. Because if they're like, well, he made me feel like garbage, you don't want that. Like, how how are you pouring into someone? And I know uh, you've, you've talked before about um, Richard Rohr, who I believe came and was a student. A year ago, he came as a student at age 78, having written 50 books. Amazing. He really liked Lynn Twist, uh, who wrote The Soul of Money, who was teaching a, a workshop. And he, he, with a couple of friends, flew down here to actually be in the workshop. Amazing. He is definitely someone that I uh, admire greatly. Um, and he has a saying, I'm sure you've heard it before, but how you do anything is how you do everything. And so we yeah. want to be great and we want to do this, but how do you care for your neighbor in need at this time is really 
across the board how we're going to do it. And, and I love that um, language that you used, uh, first half of life, kind of like ego, building ourselves up, building our identity, our brand, our image, whatever we would call it, but it's ego. And then kind of um, transcending that, but including it with us as we move into the second half of life where it's more soul. And I would say, do you, do you see a correlation or is it something that you invite people to be very intentional about as they consider this move of saying, doing something for yourself is the ego building my brand, building my, you know, image and all that versus how do I serve others and letting that be kind of more the, the soul work, if you will. Yeah. I mean, I think, let's be clear. I think, I think there's times when you have to serve yourself. There's times when you have to do the self care and there's times when, uh, life asks you to show up for your own needs and purpose in life. So, but I think the, the one of the shifts that happens is as we get older, we care a little bit less about getting credit for things. Um, you know, you, you like go do it because it's the right thing, or you go do it because it just felt natural, or you go do it because um, it would make you feel good. But you, you don't necessarily do it for the credit or, you know, any of those I, I am statements. Um, so I think that's I think that's part of it. I think, uh, you know, there's a the, Google has studied psychological safety. It's the number one variable of effective teams. And one of the number one ingredients of, of, of psychological safety is having a team, a diverse age team, especially with older people who are no longer trying to compete with younger people on their teams. And there's an element of serving. There's an element of being an older person in that group who's there to serve and not to compete with the person sitting across from them. Hmm. Yeah, that's so good. And and I, the, the t- tangential benefit of just intergenerational um, people working together is huge, right? We can we have different perspectives and experiences. And and I know you've said before we can learn from each other. It's not one dimension or one directional. Absolutely. So uh, one question on mentorship. Um, so I've I've got a business here in Vancouver, and I've benefited greatly from from working with a mentor. It's one of the first things we did when we started our business is we found a mentor that helped us kind of navigate a lot of the landmines that we definitely would have stepped on otherwise. Um, so you you're working with um, some really fascinating people from Michael Franti, one of my my favorite musicians, to Brian Chesky, um, to to Marion Goodell. Uh, from Burning Man and Gavin Newsom that you mentioned. Um, when you're mentoring these people, what are what are some practical steps you carry out? Um, what are some like accountabilities or leading questions that uh, when you're checking in with these people and helping them stay in that growth mindset, stay curious? Um, what is some some leading guidance that you kind of lean into or start with? I mean, I really would say it's it's so variable <clears throat> depending upon who the person is because each of those people you just mentioned, as well as so many other people I've mentored, uh, uh, the, what the need is for the person can can vary a lot. So, um, so I, I'm cautious about sort of saying generalizations, other than to say, um, <laughs> Oscar Wilde once said, "Be yourself; everyone else is taken." Um, I, I think that's good advice for anyone. But the people we're talking about here didn't need that advice necessarily. That all of them were very individualistic. Um, I do think what is exceptionally important for very busy people, very success-minded people, is three sentences from Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Um, he said, between, he wrote, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is your power to choose your response. And in your response lies your growth and your freedom. 
And um, I think that the idea of understanding what in your life creates space between stimulus and response. So you're not a pinball. What is it that you can do? And, um, and it's not just, you know, meditation or yoga. I mean, it literally could be walks in nature. It could be my, my co-founder of uh, MEA, Jeff, it's for him, it's surfing. But what's the thing that provides you that space between stimulus and response? Because it's actually in that space, not only that you your emotional intelligence lies and your lack of reactivity, but often your creativity. Um, you know, so yes, the first re- reaction to something could be a creative re- emotional, a creative reaction that's really amazing. But, but I'm talking really more about the emotional volatility that you can have, and um, it's also one of the qualities that actually get you get better at as you get older is um, emotional moderate. Now you see some cranky old men and women who are not this way, but on average, people their emotional intelligence grows with age, as does their emotional moderation. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, but I think beyond that, it's hard, it's really hard to, I, I mean, there's some truisms about leadership that I could, I could pull out, but I, I don't want to, I really don't want to just give you generalizations because I think they're, they're generally obvious. <laughs> generalizations are generally obvious. <laughs> I think my gift, if I have a gift on this is, is to actually really customize it and tailor, tailor the, the the advice or the, you know, let me just say this also about a mentor relationship. There's two kinds of mentors um, in my, in my book, there's the librarian and there's the confidant. The librarian is the person who has the know-how and know-who, and you want to tap in as the mentee, you want to tap into that mentor um, who is a librarian because they can answer lots of great questions and direct you to a book to read or a white paper to read or three people that you should talk to. That's those kind of mentors are wonderful, but um the kind of mentor that a lot of us think of and all four of the people you just mentioned, um, the famous people who have mentored are people who wanted a confidant relationship. And in a confidant relationship, it's not just about keeping secrets. It's the, per- your, your confidant is the person who gives you confidence. And that, that is a mentor who understands you so well that they can see your strengths and your weaknesses. They can actually help you navigate, uh, and, and create a roadmap roadmap for success. And ultimately that kind of relationship, you as the mentor are asking the questions, but in the first kind of relationship, the librarian, the mentee is asking the questions, but in the second kind of relationship, it's like me asking thoughtful catalytic questions. What's often called appreciative inquiry that helps my mentee come to the conclusions that they have inside of them. It's a, but it's a, that's a much more patient process. It's whereas the, you could have a mentor who's a, who's a librarian and you could have three meetings with them and that was it. It was a great relationship, but now I'm moving on. Yeah. So. To, to borrow one of your uh, appreciative inquiries, um, what gets you excited? What lights you up? What turns you on imagining five years from now? You now or, and five years from now or? Yeah. Five, five years from now, I, I guess imagining projecting yourself five years from now, five years from now, I think what will light me up is to know that, uh, the modern elder Academy, MEA, the world's first midlife wisdom school and our regenerative communities, uh, which are residential uh, regenerative communities built around regenerative farms for ranches have become so 
mainstream that there are a bunch of people copycatting us and doing what we're doing and making the world a better place in disrupting higher education and disrupting retirement communities. That's what I would hope is I, I want people to rip me off, rip me off, go come, come in and do what I'm doing and do it better somewhere else. And, you know, I, 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 I didn't used to say that as a boutique hotelier or as an Airbnb leader, but I am more of a social entrepreneur now. So my, my role is not finding the consumer need and filling it. It's finding the societal need and filling it. And I think there's a deep societal need that we're trying to fill. So I would feel, I would feel uh, very, you know, I feel beautiful that, you know, that the life I'm living has, is making a difference out there if that's happening. Yeah. I think one of the things that really attracted Zach and I to, to your wisdom and, and message and to yourself was exactly this. We'd, we'd been talking a lot, uh, kind of just like almost in jest, but also like feeling this deep longing that like, maybe there's a better way to live. Like maybe we could just all, you know, get some friends and like live together. And here, like in Canada, commune is like kind of a safer word. So we're just like, yeah, we just need to make like a commune where, you know, there's a, the regenerative farm in the middle. And, and, and then we shortly after kind of like having this ongoing conversation of like, what would that look like? We came across you and the modern elder Academy. And I just remember Zach sending me your profile uh, on Instagram for it. It was like, this is it this is what we need to do. So <laughs> we, we will happily uh, rip you off to the best of our abilities. But it just seems like something that the world does really need, like a reframing of let's not be separate and, and move away from ourselves, but like let's continue to move together and, and embrace like community and shared life, which is, which is a beautiful way to be. And also kind of like a, like a more ancient way of living, but we can do it in this modern society that we have. What, what have been some of the things that really light you up about that? Yeah, I think COVID accelerated this too. I think COVID, you know, got us used to the idea of if you're in a pod, who's that pod? Um, how do you live together? Um, you know, the truth is that um, meditation and yoga were very hippy dippy in the 1960s and 70s. They're not mainstream, and they've gotten way mainstream. But intentional communities and communes, um, uh, you know, in the U.S., maybe not in Canada, are, are still generally perceived as a little bit out of the mainstream. And I, I really think that that's shifting and. We, we hope to be part of that shift. Yeah, yeah. I think just projecting, uh, maybe trying to manifest some of our, our wishes and desires here as, as fathers with young kids, you know, I think this is the future of how we need to, to raise families as well. Like, you know, we talk about, there's that age old saying of, you know, you need to raise a child with a village. I think um, how you're building these regenerative communities is how we need to kind of rephrase how we raise and grow families and, and the old paradigm I don't know if it's it's serving where we we need to go as a society. So I, I, I do hope that there are, you know, a domino effect of what you're doing for aging communities for for I mean, we're all aging. So I guess that means all communities in that sense. We are all aging. Like we're all growing too. aging and growing are the same thing on some level. But yeah, I mean, we are this, these communities we're doing are intergenerational. So we have kids in them. I mean, they're not, it's not 55 plus or anything like that. So um, it's, it's a wide variety of ages. Yeah. Amazing. That's well, awesome. We hope there's one in Canada soon <laughs> for us. Uh, Maple Leafs up here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know we have to to wrap up shortly um, and we're, we're super grateful for your time. Um, I, we've got a couple kind of closing rapid fire questions that I'd love to to dive dive into before before we go. But I just want to firstly pass on gratitude because I do think the ripples you're creating are, are far reaching and and um, 
reading your work and listening to to your speeches like truly lights up my soul and and it gives me um kind of uh aspiration and and direction for a life that I want to live with intention so I want to just thank you for that I think you should come I think you guys should come and you're welcome to come with your partners to like come come on down do come down and I know it's hard to as 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 new parents, but you know, keep it in mind as as something because we've had people as young as twenty eight, as old as eighty eight. Average age is fifty four, but sixteen percent of our people who come to MEA now are millennials. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think I think that that to me that resonates because, and we would love to, we would love to, because there's this desire that there's an awakening, there's an awareness that, um, you know, as we talked about before, like. Yes, there will be a point where we kind of bottom out in life, but we don't have to have all of the maybe uh, side effects of that if we come in a little bit more prepared and understand people have walked this journey before us and here are some things we can do to help make sense of that kind of bottoming out and knowing, you know, as you you stated, and I think it's really important to reiterate is like you can kind of hit hit the floor at, you know, between 40, 45, 50, but then those decades after you're life is getting better. And I mean, I just love that. And I, it's not a story that's told often. And I think in terms of people who are eyeing that midlife area, like we're both 37, kind of looking towards that going, okay, yeah, something is coming, but it doesn't mean that it has to completely derail life. It's something that what can we use it as the chrysalis? Like what will we become as a result of it? And it just reframes that from, from something of dread to something that you can almost look forward to and say, how will this shape me as a human being? Exactly. Yeah, I love that. Dean, do you have anything else before we go to the, uh, any? Oh, I would, I would love to dive in just, just quickly. Um, so part of my work here uh, in Vancouver is uh, I wear a hat as a pastor. And um, I've, I've heard you talk about, you've been on, I mean, these wild, different, very different uh, places, like uh, on the board of Burning Man, this kind of eclectic, wild, but also deeply spiritual festival. Um, and then I've also heard you talk about work that you've done, or you've sat on a board of a, of a church in the Tenderloin District in San Francisco, which like I know historically, um, the church there uh, in and around the Tenderloin was like one of the biggest uh, advocates in the early 80s and 90s during the HIV AIDS crisis, whereas a lot of churches closed doors and turned their backs, churches in the San Francisco area embraced um, the suffering in the queer community. And I'm just really interested, like, what do you think, like, what is your spiritual makeup as you talk about, you know, moving people into like becoming wisdom and elders? I just, the, the language resonates to me and it sounds deeply spiritual. Can you tip your hat or, or what would you say? How much of this is like birth out of spirituality and what does that look like in embracing like uh, becoming a modern elder? Uh, I take off my makeup when I'm spiritual. So there's no spiritual makeup, but um, uh, so um <clears throat> You know, I would say that the thing that has most deeply moved me um, is animism, <laughs> uh, which is what you see in Bali. Uh, they call it Hindu, they call it Balinese Hinduism, but it's really animism. And it's if you ever watched the movie The Amer American Beauty, it was that the, the kid who filmed the bag in the wind. Oh yes, that's beautiful scene. Yeah. <clears throat> so to me to believe that everything has spirit is a <clears throat> opening a door and it is opening a door that I can't even go into right now in terms of what it can mean for how you view the world 
not in an object relations kind of way where that's an object and I'm a human. Um, so there's an element of, so there's an element of that. I grew up Episcopalian, um, didn't really gravitate to that too much. I was for 10 years uh, on the board of the Glide Memorial Church, Methodist Church. Um, and I really appreciated the, the form of liberation theology that Cecil Williams, the black pastor, uh, used. And I was I would give sermons in that black church, although it's a very mixed race church now. But um, what, a, what an experience that was. Um, uh, Buddhism is deeply woven into my philosophy. Um, so <clears throat> I guess I'm sort of the classic spiritual but not religious person. And um, I, don't, I don't love that positioning uh, because it can mean so many things. Um, but what I appreciate about spirituality is, <clears throat> as opposed to religion, is is the idea that it what comes with it is an appreciation for awe and things that are bigger than you. Um, religion can do that as well. <clears throat> religion sometimes has the dogma attached and the tribalism attached that can be problematic for sure. Uh, not just now, but historically. And mm -hmm. so I've been somewhat cautious. Yes. To be on the board of a Methodist church for 10 years. <laughs> yes. I was serious. If someone, and you know, but when people ask me today, like, so what, what, how do you define, uh, your, your religion or your spirituality. And I, it's like, you know, sometimes some things are best left undefined. And I would just say that I am someone who aspires to the mystery. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's my religion is mystery, is the mystery and the awe. Um, and mystery and awe can take you to deeply spiritual and deeply religious places. So that's, that's beautiful. Thank you, Chip, for sharing that. Sounds like you got that, the growth mindset of spirituality versus the fixed one. Yeah, I definitely, that, that for sure there, but that's for sure. I, I love that. Um, we always like to wrap things up with just some, some fun rapid fires for, for levity and for kind of takeaways. And, uh, we look forward to continuing to following your journey and hopefully coming down to your, your academy to, to learn further and, and to stay curious together. Um, one kind of fun question. I know you're a bit of a, a maestro of, of festivals. You know, you've, uh, how many, how many festivals did you go to in one year? It was like, I went to 36 festivals in 16 countries in one year. Okay. So if you could, what would be two or three festivals that you would recommend for somebody listening to this that uh, we should experience in this lifetime? Uh, well, I went to Maha Kumbh Mela, which is the largest festival in the world. It's a hundred million people at the Ganges River in India every 12 years. And um, the smaller one with 30 to 50 million people is every three years. Uh, I mean, so Emile Durkheim's French sociologist coined the phrase collective effervescence. And it's when your sense of ego separation dissolves and what comes in this place is communal joy. So a devotional festival uh, of any kind is has that potential. And there was an enormous amount of collective effervescence there. The feeling of just being buzzed by being people who are so devotional. Um, so that's, that, that is a hard one to get to hard one to do, but, it, but totally uh, <laughs> worth it. Um, on a more mundane or not mundane, but more easily accessible one. I love the new, new Orleans jazz and heritage fest. 
it, partly because New Orleans as a city opens its doors. It's really a beautiful experience. This music, all kinds of music. Um, but I just, I love the diversity of the collection of people that are there and, and what a, what a, what a great opportunity to get to know a community in, in it, at its best. Um, uh, <laughs> a festival that I found just phenomenally culturally interesting was Il Palio, which is a, a, an ancient bareback horseback ra- riding uh, race in Il- in Siena, Italy, um, around this big square and this big coliseum, and and it's all these neighborhoods, and it goes on for days because all these each neighborhood has their horse and their rider, and they have parties in their neighborhoods, and and it's it's I mean it's like a medieval you know in the U.S. and in Canada. Um, if there's a, like a, a Renaissance fair, it's usually somewhat cheesy. Uh, this was a Renaissance fair with roots back to the, to like the 1400s. So there's a deep sense of like, man, I am just witnessing history, but in present day. And uh, that, that was also a favorite. I have so many favorites, that, 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 but those off the top of my head are three. Who would you name as some people in your life that are like elders that you have looked up to or look up to? So Herb Kelleher was one of my elders and one of my my mentors. He was the CEO of Southwest Airlines and we never met in person, but I had a pen pal mentor relationship with him for 10 years. Um, Oh my gosh, who else? My, My good friend Vanda, who's a life coach, executive coach and a close friend. Um, she's been, she's been so full of wisdom for me when I've been down and out, um, in my life. Uh, my father as well. Um, he, he's been, I don't always agree with my dad's advice, <laughs> but I appreciate the sentiment with which it's often delivered. I feel like you're not the first person <laughs> to say that. <laughs> thanks, but no thanks on that one, dad. <laughs> cool. Thank you. What is something new you're learning about right now? Um, I'm learning about my own hero's journey. I just literally figured this out three days ago and I, I'm, gonna, I'm writing a blog post. So I have a blog, Wisdom Well, a daily blog that, you know, you'll see on January 2nd, this blog post will go live. I'm pretty excited about it. I'm pumped because most people have heard about the hero's journey. Very few people have actually then tried to say, how would I articulate my my themes around my hero's journey. And I think I actually found the 12 themes of my hero's journey, put it in the form of a circle, like a clock, and I'm going to unleash it on the world and then start teaching it at MEA workshops as well. Not so everybody gets to know my hero's journey, but just so that they can actually start to introduce themselves to their own hero's journey. Because if you could actually understand the dynamics that are on your path, often some of them are quite unconscious. You have so much more influence over them. Uh, you know, Carl Jung was very clear about that, as was Richard Rohr about, you know, taking the unconscious and making it conscious is one of the most important things we do as adults. Um, so, yeah, so I would say that's a very specific answer, but I think that's something I'm, I'm learning right now and I'm excited about it. That's very cool. Very cool. Um, what is one thing on your bucket list for 2023? Hmm. Um, one thing on my bucket list for 2023 is I'm probably coming to Vancouver 
to give a, I, I, I've given talks at, the, at TED before, but I'm probably coming to Vancouver to give a three minute talk about the midlife chrysalis. Oh my goodness. Based upon conversations that, you know, I've had with the TED folks. So yeah, so that would be a highlight to be go be up on stage at a TED conference again, this time with a shorter thing, but I'd like to be able to talk in three minutes yes. about the chrysalis to that audience. And then, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe, maybe it, I don't know if three minute video, three minute uh, talks make the video circuits for TED. I think they probably do. Um, but, you know, I, I love that because that's an idea that I think is whose time has come is the idea of helping people understand that it's not a midlife crisis, it's a chrysalis. Amazing. Well, maybe we'll see you in Vancouver when you're here. Um, okay, uh, Dean, you want to take us to our closing question? Yeah. So first of all, just uh, again, uh, let us express our gratitude for your time, uh, for your willingness to just jump on the pod here and have this conversation with us. We, we absolutely love um, what you are all about, the work that you do, um, the invitations that you extend to people to live into their their aging and to not seeing it as aging out, but aging up and leveling up. Um, we absolutely love your message and love what you're about. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being with us today. Um, and uh, Zach and I, we, we started this podcast. It was nameless. <laughs> we didn't really know what we were doing. We just wanted to get together and have meaningful conversation with people that inspired us or challenge us to see the world in new and different ways. And eventually we landed on the name a little more good. And we just knew that that was something that we wanted to see and do and kind of be about in the world in every circumstance that we found ourselves. And we love to ask our guests, like, what does that phrase conjure up for you? Or what does that mean to you? A little more good. Yeah, I think what it conjures up for me is the idea that um, the, the most beautiful things in life um, a Dacker Keltner, one of our professor, one of our teachers here, who's a UC Berkeley professor, um, and he's a teacher at MEA. I'm going to have dinner with him tonight. Uh, he says that the number one path to awe, there's eight paths to awe, but the number one that's most common around the world is moral beauty. And moral beauty is when you actually see or experience something that is a little more good. I mean, a little more good? <laughs> um something that is just small and um, maybe not noticeable and certainly not headlined, but it's the little token. It's the little experience of the combination of the sacred and, and the human, you know, mixed together. And so I think, you know, I, I like, I like the, the title of the podcast. Um, and I think it is what we should aspire to in our lives uh, as opposed to again the legacy and like I am what survives me. Oh, it's it's it, like headlining. No, actually, it's the little things. You know, that's what people remember. So good, thank you, Chip, so much for sharing your time, your wisdom, your stories with us. Uh, deeply, deeply appreciative. And uh, yeah, looking forward, looking forward to having you in Vancouver. That'd be so cool to, to see you and, and catch that TED Talk. Thanks so much, Chip. We appreciate you. Great to see you guys. Oh, man. Chip Conley. That was so good. Yes. Yeah. Modern elder. He does not disappoint. I feel like I can't wait to actually arrive at the Modern Elder Academy, like not only because of its beautiful location, but... Um, just to know of, you know, intersecting and interacting with people who are of that similar wavelength and to learn and to kind of spend some intentional time carving it out for ourselves, both 
for the present and our future selves. And then knowing like that will be an investment in ourselves, but also in the communities that we're part of. And so, yeah, I can't wait. But until then, we'll just have to um, continue to read, read the blog, read the books, listen to the pods, see his TED Talk in Vancouver. Hopefully that comes to fruition. That'd be so fun. And hopefully you listening to this, dear friends, dear listeners, uh, have caught the Chip Conley bug and know that this is someone that you want to follow, admire, learn from, lean into. Uh, Yeah. We, we know that uh, his wisdom is well worth your time. He's got a daily uh, blog journal nuggets of wisdom that he shares wisdomwell.modernelderacademy.com. And they're sometimes short, sometimes long ponderings uh, of his life that he shares that are incredible, incredible takeaways of, of daily wisdom. So check that out. Yeah, that's where um, you'll find his hero's journey one that he was talking about in the pod. So I can't wait yes, to read it into that. January 2nd, uh, that date will pass by the time this comes out. So it'll be there. Yeah. Um, you can also check out uh, modernelderacademy.com, um, a school dedicated to helping you navigate midlife and beyond. Your wisdom and experience have never been more needed or important. We are. They offer the tools to help you navigate your next chapter. So it's this like amazing regenerative community that he's building uh, around aging and being connected to, to land and community, much like the blue zones that we hear from from uh, Dan Buettner. Um, he's kind of creating his own own blue zone. Very mm-hmm. cool. And then ChipConley.com for his his books, his press, uh, video, all that all that goodness. So yeah, if you got the Chip Conley bug like we do, uh, you know. Check out all of those sites and beyond. And again, you know, we're always grateful for all of your listens, your shares. So please do like, subscribe, review, thumbs up, you know, thumbs down, even if you don't like what we're saying. <laughs> That's right. We do appreciate the good and the bad reviews, the shares, all of that. So thank you for making it this far. Thank you for being a part of our community. Thank you for sharing your time. We know that time is our greatest currency. So we appreciate you sharing your time with us. And uh, as always, stay tuned for more episodes every Tuesday. Yeah. Peace.